Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, from influencers to QAnon, how misinformation changed in Ireland over the past year. We know COVID-19 brought misinformation and disinformation to Ireland on a scale the country hasn't experienced before. It's something we've talked about at length on this podcast. The WHO has said on numerous occasions that there is an infodemic at play alongside the pandemic. But it's over 12 months now since the proliferation of those WhatsApp messages telling us to drink potions to stave off the coronavirus or to hold our breaths to test for COVID-19. But what kind of false messages are people being bombarded with now? Has the nature of misinformation changed and how do people knowingly or unknowingly share it? These are the kinds of questions I want to ask of our two guests today who are experts in the field and key people in Ireland's battle against disinformation as well. I'm joined by Kieran O'Connor from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is a global organization dedicated to finding solutions to extremism, disinformation and polarization. And Christine Bohan, deputy editor of The Journal and the lead of our fact check initiative here. Christine, I'm just going to start with you. Can you give our listeners an insight into the fact checking and debunking work that we have been doing as a team since the start of the pandemic? So we've done over 150 fact checks in the last year. And just to give an idea of the scale, we went from doing a couple a month to a few every single week, which I think kind of shows you how much misinformation has grown in Ireland uh, in, in the last year. And it's ebbed and flowed a lot. Um, we saw a lot of misinformation at the very start of the pandemic and it quietened down a bit when restrictions were loosened. But we're seeing a lot around now, probably more, I would say, than at the very start of the pandemic. And it's a lot about the vaccine. It's about the restrictions but it's also pulling in conspiracy theories and misinformation from other countries as well. The way that we figure out which things we want to fact check, because there is so much of it, and um, the way that we triage them is we look for things that might cause harm potentially and things that are being shared a lot in Ireland. So if we see someone saying something like the vaccine is going to make you infertile and it's been shared 200 times on Irish Facebook pages, then we say, OK, that's a priority. That's something we want to fact check. But if we see someone saying something like, Michal Martin is being paid off by Bill Gates and it's, you know, from a Twitter account with one follower, that's not so much of a priority. So they're kind of the two extremes. They're the very uh, clear cut cases and most of the things that we're seeing fall in between. So I suppose a lot of our job is about figuring out where the important ones to fact check land where they are. Yeah, imagine that. That's not imagine. I know this is always a big conversation in the newsroom, which which ones are, are the most important in terms of the nature of the information or I suppose the people impacted. Has that changed? Yeah, massively. Yeah. Partly just because there's so much more misinformation. Um, Ireland had really low levels of it before the pandemic. And now we're just like every other country. Shit, it actually reminds me, I was on this podcast with you last year and I remember we were talking about how our big fear at the time was about whether or not misinformation would stick around um, as the pandemic played out. And I think what we've seen now is that that has happened, that the misinformation has stuck around. We're seeing, you know, conspiracy theories from abroad imported to Ireland, but we're also seeing homegrown misinformation, which we never really had before this. And I think one of the big changes is that we're seeing it in lots of different formats, that it was on Facebook and WhatsApp in particular, but now we're seeing it on, you know, other parts of the internet, like Instagram and TikTok and Telegram. But we're also seeing it in the real world, too. We're seeing, you know, leaflets in people's doors or stickers on on uh, on poles around uh, different cities or, you know, protests, which aren't necessarily all motivated by misinformation, but it's definitely in the mix for some of them. So I think it's expanded on the internet, but also in, in the real world, too. And we're seeing lots of different people engage with it. So that's probably the biggest change, actually. Just if you think of COVID misinformation as one big umbrella 
and there's lots of different communities in it. So you might have, say, your anti-government activists, you've got people in the wellness space, you've got anti-vax people, you've got trolls, kind of agents of chaos who are always there in the mix. And these groups are intersecting and bouncing off each other and spreading things from one community to another. So there's a lot of a blurring of lines. So I would say that change, the, the fact that there's a lot more communities and a lot more people in them, that's been a big, big change. So there's a lot more people to fight. Um, and it's that word I used in the introduction. It does feel more like a bombardment, I'm sure, for people. Kieran, for you, does that ring true for you, what Christine is talking about? Or what main changes have you witnessed in your work in the last year? Yeah, that explosion in growth is something I've seen as well. Um, myself and some colleagues have conducted various pieces of research focused on Ireland, uh, and that tracks across multiple platforms. One recent piece we put out looked at the uh, nature and scale of far-right movement on Telegram in Ireland, and it shows that in, in 2019, there was less than 10 far-right channels and they posted 801 messages thereabouts. And in 2020, this ballooned. There was 34 channels at least, and they published over 63,000 messages. And we see that these groups are getting shares and kind of getting pickup in COVID conspiracy communities away from the harder edge in, in the more, you know, general misinformation kind of communities also attract a massive explosion. In, in, in the a number of people who are in these groups and the, the level of activity. And what that points to is more of a conspiracy misinformation ecosystem. Um, another change I suppose I've noticed is the response from mainstream platforms. There is uh, an acknowledgement that there is a side to disinformation, that there's a network aspect and their platforms were being used and abused. Uh, we saw Facebook take a systematic approach to eventually banning QAnon in, in October in 2020. And I put out an outright ban on all anti-vaccine, not just COVID anti-vaccine misinformation in February. So that does show progress. But on the flip side, uh, disinformers are adept now at picking up and starting again when they are removed from these mainstream platforms and they might go to spaces like Telegram or elsewhere to, to choose where to go next um, and how to, it's really a cat and mouse game. The other change that I've tracked in the last year, hopefully that we, we, we all have an understanding, uh, probably know someone who is inclined to, to share, you know, misinformation, uh, conspiracies on Facebook, but I hope that we have an understanding that these people are kind of pulled down the rabbit hole. They're looking for answers in a complex time. But we also see through events in Ireland or abroad the, the dangerous ramifications of conspiracies of disinformation. I think they're evident for us all. You mentioned there that the proliferation of far right groups has happened at the same time as the proliferation of COVID conspiracies. But a lot of people who would say call themselves anti-lockdown or would align themselves with groups who would put out messages to try and stop lockdowns, they'd be adamant that they're not far right. How do you disentangle those groups or is it even possible to? Yeah, well, in, in, in that particular research that I was talking about, the, the methodology quickly behind that was that we tracked COVID conspiracy telegram communities and then we coded for, I think it was nine channels um, in the end, and we coded for the source of the content that was either being forwarded from other uh, Telegram channels or being posted by these COVID conspiracy channels. And we found that 9%, almost 1 in 10 uh, messages that were being posted in Irish COVID conspiracy Telegram channels 
we're coming from a far right source. So that's one way we're trying to examine the, the intersection between um, far right movement and, and COVID conspiracy movements. But we've also seen over the last year that this kind of COVID anti-lockdown movement has, has kind of been co-opted by uh, far-right uh, parties, influencers, figures, because this is a way to foster uh, anger and foster hostility and foster support for their political agenda. Uh, at, at recent protests in, in Dublin, we've seen far-right figures marching and we see them using the current period for their own political objectives. Now, it's important, of course, to state that people who may have questions about the current situation, about vaccines, about lockdowns, they are not far right. You know, they are not automatically labeled that um, because of their of their of their genuine questions. And it's an important distinction to make. But we do see that in this community of people who are seeking answers and and maybe a bit um, confused in the current period, there are far right groups, influencers, figures who are seeking to to co-opt that for their own political objectives. Yeah, with all these complexities, Christine, is it harder now to fact check or debunk misinformation or if it, is some of it so outrageous that it's easily done? It's definitely harder. Um, I would say at the very start of the pandemic, a lot of the misinformation that was being shared was single claims. And what I mean by that is we would see something saying like, the HSC is telling people to stockpile food or one we saw a lot was uh, you can test for coronavirus by holding your breath for 10 seconds. And they were very straightforward to fact check because, you know, we could ring the HSC and say, are you telling people to stockpile food? You're not. OK, fine. We'll write a fact check. You know, we can we can check that out. And now misinformation has become very blurry, I think is the best way of describing it. We see a lot of things that are about sowing distrust um, in government. A lot of very like a typical post we would see would be very long, very wordy. And often it might sound authoritative, it might have some facts right, but it might play fast and loose with the facts, with the truth as well, or mix some facts in with lies. The one that springs to mind actually when we say this is that in the last six months, we've seen a lot of misinformation in Ireland about the number of deaths in Ireland from COVID. And we will see posts, particularly on Facebook, where people will use charts and graphs and write big, long posts about how the official figures are wrong and you know, if you skim them or if you just glance at them, these posts might look right, they might look true, but generally they aren't. And they're making people distrust government and authorities. And, you know, Ireland has traditionally had very high levels of trust in institutions, despite everything that's happened in the country. But it does seem like this kind of misinformation could have some impact on that. They might erode that trust and make people more uh, distrustful. So I would say that we don't generally have mainstream figures getting media attention for making false claims like we don't have a Donald Trump you know or somebody like that but what we have is I would say it's, it's more insidious and it can be harder to fact check as a result and therefore harder to get the truth out like I think a lot of people will know people who think COVID deaths lots of deaths are put down as COVID deaths even when they aren't even though that has been thoroughly debunked a lot it's it's harder to get that kind of truth out there but with all of these uh, complex posts that are put up Exactly. It's it's like it becomes it goes into the ether or becomes part of the narrative. People see it so many times that they think, oh, I've seen so many posts about it. Therefore, there must be something true about it instead of actually delving into what's being said. We've mentioned Facebook a few times already. How is misinformation playing out there in, in the last 12 months? Well, Facebook's always kind of the original home for misinformation, if you think about it. Um, and it is still a huge problem there. I think one of the biggest changes that we've seen in Ireland is that now we have Facebook pages or groups that are specifically set up to share misinformation. 
And before the pandemic, we would have seen individuals using pages that already existed um, or maybe jumping onto pages for COVID updates. But now we see these specific ones that have built communities and engaged people purely based on sharing misinformation or sharing things that kind of uh, sow distrust or sow harm uh, within these communities. And they're often very busy. Like if people have seen these pages on Facebook, they often have lots and lots of posts, lots of engagement. And, you know, Kieran talked about what the platforms have been doing and Facebook is very vocal about how proactive it's been. Facebook has said that they've taken down 12 million pieces of misinformation across Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, they use a network of fact checkers around the world, including the journal, to label misinformation um, on the platform. But even with those two things, those two big, big resources, so taking down posts and labeling them, like there's still a long way to go until Facebook stops being seen as a hub for misinformation. It's still very much the go-to platform for it. Yeah, Kieran, you have some numbers about the growth of communities on Facebook. How much have we seen these kind of forums for misinformation grow since coronavirus pandemic started? Yeah, yeah. Put out a short piece of research um, in March looking at misinformation in COVID conspiracy Facebook communities. And over a sample we had of, of over 40 Irish Facebook groups that regularly host and post COVID mis- disinformation. On August 1st, there was 68,500 users who were members of these groups. By February 1st, that had jumped to 130,800 people. That's a 90% increase. The level of activity, activity was up by 62% as well. What does that tell us? Well, it points to a larger shift towards spaces, as Christine mentioned, where it's it, the DNA of the community is conspiracies, deceptive and harmful information is rife. People are encouraged to, you know, quote unquote, do your own research, which is i.e. find something that almost confirms your biases. And to kind of loop back to just something you asked Christine there about how we're seeing misinfo play out on Facebook, I'd also point out that misinformation, uh, combating misinformation from Facebook is it's inconsistent as well. So in, in, in that report that I just mentioned, we had one example of a claim that uh, taking the COVID vaccine will result in death or serious injury two or three months down the line. And in one instance, this was uploaded onto BitChute, which is sort of like a YouTube alternative. And when that was posted on Facebook, that carried a fact check, but then it was uploaded onto another page directly to the website, no fact check. It was uploaded to another group via you know, a website that that was infringed belief and that had no fact check. So what we really do see um, is that it's 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 such a cat and mouse game in, in trying to effectively track and tackle and combat this misinformation because you might flag one source of uh, an egregious false claim, but uh, people who are determined to share this stuff can can use very simple workarounds to try and get it out there and try and, um, you know, misinform and, and share deceptive information. An example of that is our most recent fact check, Christine, one that had gone quite viral at the start of the week, that travellers had been protesting outside of a Pfizer complex because they allegedly said they wouldn't move until they were given the vaccine. There turned to, out to be no truth to that whatsoever. Are some trends directed at marginal communities like travellers or was this kind of messaging a once-off? We've seen a couple of them um, in the last six months in particular. I wouldn't say that it's quite a trend yet, but I think what we're seeing is concerning enough in that it's pointing to something that could become a trend. 
One that we saw recently, which is quite similar, was that uh, claim went viral on Facebook in Ireland. And it said that everybody who was in the direct provision centre in Mosny uh, was being vaccinated ahead of, out of sequence um, with the, the vaccination uh, priority list in Ireland. And it was shared really widely in Ireland. And I think what's happening there is that it's being shared by people who perhaps feel like something unfair is happening in the country or people are frustrated and they feel like they're losing out or somebody else is winning and it's at their expense. And so it creates this kind of us and them narrative. It's, it's, you see people sharing it who kind of think this is unfair. I'm losing out. Why are these people getting this special treatment? And, you know, the concern there is that we've seen how this narrative plays out in, in other countries in, in, in recent years. And I think Ireland has been very lucky in that we generally have avoided having political parties jump on this narrative or use it for, for political ends or try to capitalize on it. But I suppose for me, one of the big questions I have is about what is the end point of all this misinformation? Like, will we see people who are sharing this kind of uh, post, will we see them running for election or looking for candidates who will support these these kind of us and them narratives or these kind of things that they're sharing on, on social media? And I think, you know, Ireland, it's the one thing that we haven't seen too much of in Ireland, but it would be the, probably one of the biggest concerns I would have about these marginalised communities being uh, targeted like this. Yeah, because being an electoral candidate seems to be an obvious point for some of these figures that have, you know, got a, a natural following over the last 12 months because of misinformation. Yeah, it definitely feels like it is an end point. Just from looking at what's happened in other countries, it does seem like, you know, for if we're trying to figure out what happens next, it does seem like an obvious one. I mean, you know, there is no election due to happen in Ireland for a few years. So that's the one thing. The timing is very bad for it. And I don't know how many of these pages can sustain the momentum until the next, say, general election. Um, I think that's probably the biggest uh, buffer that we have to, the, to stopping this. But it's definitely still a concern. Over the summer, we wrote a series about the types of misinformation we had seen thus far in the first few months. And we talked a lot about how misinformation tropes could travel from one country to the next and hop continents. Are we seeing new types of stories in the same way now like we did those six months ago? Yeah, the one area where we're seeing a lot of this is in science, actually. The first example we probably saw, the most high profile example was when Donald Trump started talking about hydroxychloroquine and how that was a drug that could be used to treat uh, COVID-19. And it was shared massively in obviously in America, it spread to Ireland and lots of other countries. And the one we've seen most recently is a lot of posts talking about ivermectin, which is this drug that is used to treat parasitic infections. But we saw lots of posts being shared in Ireland, which said that this was a drug that could be used to treat COVID-19. And the posts that we were seeing in Ireland were often kind of targeted for an Irish market. It was saying, you know, this isn't being used by the HSC or Neffet won't discuss this drug, but it's a wonder drug. And it was really interesting because it was um, homegrown misinformation and it was being you know, exactly the same as being seen in so many other countries, but we were seeing it targeted at an Irish market. And I think what these posts often have in common, these scientific ones, is that they're often pushed by people who claim to be experts or they have some kind of involvement from someone who says that they're an expert in the field, you know, like maybe a scientist or someone who's worked in the area. And I think this is because experts have such big currency on social media. And I actually don't know if it's just an Irish specific thing or if other countries have it too, but Ireland loves these posts where you have an expert saying, other people won't tell you this, but here's a drug that you don't know about, or here's something the HSE is hiding. Um, and it's one of the most common types of misinformation we're seeing here because, you know, people don't just share any old misinformation. If it looks like it's come from an expert, then it has a lot more value. And that's what we're seeing with these uh, scientific posts in particular. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because these posts obviously are popular amongst groups where other posts would kind of make you think that a lot of people in the communities think that the whole thing is a hoax. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's, I think, 
sometimes they just they just sound so believable, like it's being shared for a reason. You know, it taps into people's belief system. It's something that they might have already thought was true. And it gives them that sense that something is being kept from you, but you're getting this information, this privileged information. And now, you know, what are you going to do with it? And oftentimes people want to share it and tell other people in their their communities about it. Um, so it's very, you know, well targeted and very insidious. How has Instagram been playing a role in the last few months? I know we didn't touch on it as much before. Is it a new place for a new breeding ground for misinformation? Yeah, I would say we'd barely seen any misinformation on Instagram in Ireland before the last six months or so. Um, but what we're seeing now is particularly in uh, the beauty sphere, the wellness and kind of small business areas. Um, and what happens is it's quite different actually to other platforms because it's not like people are necessarily sharing these Instagram posts which contain misinformation. What we're seeing in Ireland is that we might see a person or a page becoming a hub for it and attracting people to their page who like what the person is saying and they want to support them. There's one account I can think of uh, that re- very recently started posting anti-vax content on um, Instagram and it gained 3000 followers in five days, which is a huge amount. So it suggests, you know, that there is an audience for this. And the person on this particular page knew how to attract this audience or knew that what they were saying was being found by the community of people who are interested in this. And I think the big issue there is about how it spreads. There was this study that was done very recently, which found that Instagram was recommending misinformation or dodgy content to people if you watched one video. So kind of similar to what's been spoken about with YouTube, where you can fall down a rabbit hole. If you watch one video, they'll show you lots, lots more along the same lines. But and the researchers found that if they watched one anti-vaccine story or post on, on Instagram, then Instagram was recommending more and more to them. And now Facebook was disputing this, but the study found what the study found. And it kind of shows what a challenge the platforms have, because how do they police things like Instagram stories? You know, Instagram stories disappear after 24 hours. So it's not a big window to find the misinformation, to check it, to take action on it. And I actually think this is like the next big problem for the platforms. Like, how do they deal with these kind of messaging systems? Like, how do they deal with posts that aren't necessarily going to be there within a few hours and stop them from being shared by, by a community of people? And Kieran, we know YouTube is particularly hard to fact check because of the length of the videos often. So is Instagram going to come across the same problem? Very few stories are fully subtitled. So people who maybe do want to kind of take on this battle would have to transcribe these videos themselves and then they might disappear after 24 hours. So it would be felt feel like a wasted effort. Yes, um, Instagram is notoriously difficult for kind of large-scale analysis along themes or hashtags or, or, or what have you but also in the the disappearing element of stories they, they, they're gone after 24 hours so the the potential to fact check it or the potential to track it is gone with it uh, to talk about kind of misinformation or or extremism on on instagram you kind of have to really talk about the architecture of that platform and how it's different. It's I suppose a bit of a walled garden. It's closed off. If 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 I'm a misinformer and, and the kind of crucial thing is that if, if I'm a misinformer and I post something on my page or on a story, it's presented uncritically. It, there's no forum for criticism to interject or appear on that page in response to it. So the person is the gatekeeper, the, the misinformer, the conspiracy theorist is the, is the gatekeeper of the content on that page. And if you're someone who is just, uh, who has genuine questions or might just be uh, uninformed about a topic and you come and you see one side of the issue, and it's not only just one side, it's one side with uh, leading points, sending, you know, misinforming points and things like that, that it does not uh, allow for for fact checkers, for researchers to come in and try and debunk 
that uh, that misinformation. So you, as the as the misinformer, as the conspiracy theorist, you have incredible control over over how your content is uh, presented to people. And maybe as well with Instagram, it's a little bit different to to Twitter or, or elsewhere, where you're kind of almost presenting your 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 opinion, your videos as testimonials, which may have, a, have an effect on people in a different way to a 140 character tweet that could be mis- misleading in a different way as well. So there's a lot of unique qualities that make Instagram advantageous towards conspiracy theories and and more of a challenging platform for for, for organizations like ourselves and yourselves. Internationally, have some of the kind of bigger conspiracy theories like QAnon, have they become more prolific on Instagram? Yeah, they they have um, on on Instagram and Facebook and really right across the the, the large uh, social web. Um, when we think about QAnon, I think a helpful distinction uh, is that QAnon in the US uh, really was rooted in being a pro-Trump political conspiracy um, the the bad guys were the Democrats or Hillary Clinton or members of you know Hollywood and things like that. But what we really see when QAnon comes abroad and this and this kind of points towards wider conspiracy movements in in Ireland and elsewhere is that when when QAnon kind of goes abroad, it's almost I think more helpful to think of it as a methodology in terms of how you promote and spread harmful or dangerous misinformation if you are the QAnon supporter. Uh, we've seen key uh, kind of core to so much of the spread of conspiracies around COVID has been this idea of do your own research. The, the truth is out there. If you just keep digging and you find uh, someone who has, who is an expert who may have been struck off the register because they're too controversial or, or whatever it might be, but if you keep doing this and that DIY ethos to do your own research and find the answers is also quite empowering it's quite empowering for you if you're if you're in this uh mind space where you know a lot has happened over the last year and you're looking for answers and now you start to find answers and and that's almost kind of starts to pull you down and that's what we talk about when we say being pulled down the rabbit hole and we saw at the danger as well though with QAnon is that there are all there are also themes and and core conspiracy tenets of that that uh, are being localized in an Irish context as well. I believe after the anti-lockdown, recent anti-lockdown protest in Dublin, uh, there was two ladies who were interviewed, I think by Mark Tai, uh, outside the GPO who, who spoke about thousands of missing children in Ireland. They spoke about uh, journalists in, in RTE drinking adrenochrome, which uh, I mean, it was, it was it was first ever written about. It's a fictional drug by Hunter S. Thompson, but QAnon adherents believe that it's 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 a drug that's made. <laughs> stick with me here. It's a drug that's made through uh, sacrificing children and and by scaring them, you produce this this mineral that celebrities and politicians then drink to, you know, be stronger to become immortal, things like that. So. These two women who were interviewed believed that uh, journalists in RTE were drinking adrenochrome. The point being, though, that that shows that that's a, that's that's QAnon. That's a U.S. rooted U.S. political conspiracy, but it's been localized. It's been given a local context, and it points back to what Christine was saying that our conspiracies are now becoming homegrown. They're taking the the loose scaffolding 
of what was in QAnon. And, 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 and perhaps those two ladies don't even know what QAnon actually is the title, but they do know in their belief that RT journalists are drinking adrenochrome and that there are thousands of missing children. So when we think about it abroad, it's really that, that DIY, do your own research, ask your own questions, find the quote unquote truth that's really empowering. And that's what we have to watch for in, in the spread of conspiracies at the moment. I think that's been one of the biggest changes actually in the last year that we never would have seen something like this in Ireland before. We might have talked about, you know, crazy theories that we would see particularly um, in the US, but it was never something that we actually saw in Ireland. And now suddenly, like you say, these women or other people may not necessarily be liking QAnon, you know, uh, social media pages, because obviously a lot of them take it down and they wouldn't describe themselves as adherents to that belief or anything. But what they've taken from it, from what they've heard is about a saving children and supporting children. And it's, it's been things that have been targeted at parents rather than, at, you know, people who might see themselves as conspiracy theorists it's actually been so insidious and so um like a masterclass on how to get people to support these ideas without actually seeing themselves as like say QAnon adherents or disciples or whatever yeah Karen how organic is this growth that people will just you know do the do DIY research um and all come to the same conclusions or are there figureheads actually you know on the puppet strings making sure all this happens I think the actual best example of how movements have kind of coalesced in the last year was uh, after that that anti-lockdown protest in Dublin when 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 Paul Reynolds was was talking about the protest afterwards he said that present today were anti-mask anti-lockdown far right etc 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 groups at the protest and that really shows that this this great big Venn diagram of how people with different beliefs different politics have all kind of come together under this kind of anti-lockdown pro-freedom um, banner and and that branding is also quite deliberate it's it's safe it's general it's it's anti-lockdown it's it's pro-freedom i mean who could really argue that i'm anti-lockdown i want to get out of this uh, as, as soon as possible but the danger is that within these communities of how people are being kind of shown the tools to kind of quote unquote, do your own research, but then being given misleading and false uh, sources of information. The danger is that within those communities, along with the many people who you know just want life to get back to normal, there are also people or groups seeking to, to use that frustration, to use that anger to provoke your emotions, to, to help them achieve their own radical, perhaps anti-democratic uh, objectives. So in this in this great, uh, this great Venn diagram, I guess, of, of people who, who, who are looking for answers in what is a very complex time, there are also figureheads. There are also people who do have political or electoral ambitions, or, or perhaps it's, it's, it's more influence and, and, and money. That's, that's their, that's their grift. But there are people who are seeking to use the anger and hostility of general population to further their own political objectives and i mean that's quite poisonous to try and lead by division and lead by anger but we are seeing anti kind of lockdown people who are angry uh, being co-opted like that leafleting through doors has been something that's happened a lot over the last year we get pictures of those leaflets into our fact checking email a lot what is the point of these leaflets when obviously you can do a lot more sharing of misinformation online than you can in real life with paper yeah, I think this this form of leafleting, this analog campaigning, it's 
probably deliberately low tech. It's often not uh, attributable to any person or figure. It's, it's, it's anonymous. So you can put it through someone's door. You might hit someone who isn't online, um, who doesn't, you know, typically come across the spaces in which you as, as kind of misinformer or conspiracy theorist do take part in. You might have a better chance of someone seeing your leaflet, of course, but the, 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 coming back to the low tech side, the platforms have tried to take action against COVID conspiracies and mis and disinformation. And people who are using and, and posting leaflets probably realize that. So these leaflets are a way for them to get around uh, platform actions. It also helps them to, to bring the movement to a potentially wider audience. But the one of the most interesting parts about leafleting that I find anyways that is that we, we so there's kind of like ready-made kits online for, and people are encouraged to print off this leaflet and and put it into your area and it's a really uh, zero loss game for whoever is behind these uh, these leaflets and these kind of you know articles of misinformation because they produce it and promote it using social media to get it out there and they take on none of the of the costs, be it financial or otherwise. People are encouraged to print this off themselves to go around to their locality. And if you are a, a misinformer, you know, maybe sitting in your in your home in Cork, for example, you can put this online and pretty quickly, especially with lockdown, uh, with, with, with kind of 5K limits and things like that, you can encourage people across the country to do the work for you uh, and to you know spread the reach of, of, of this misinformation. But I do think it is, it is a deliberately low-tech, word-of-mouth uh, misinformation campaigning idea. And do they work? Do they have an impact on people? It's certainly questionable. Uh, I think that it, it will, I mean, as a marketing strategy, yes, I think it's it's effective in probably catching people who who might not see, uh, who might not see your information online. It's also a way of uh, evading platform responses and platform takedowns and things like that as well. And it's also a way to, I mean, these are very localized forms of campaigning. So people might go and poster uh, a town like my, my, my poster one town and try and drum up I mean the, the exact one big example of how leaflets were used to drum up uh, support recently was around promoting or encouraging businesses to reopen in defiance of uh, restrictions in, in Ireland and it was in the Tralee I think there was an online and then an offline element uh, in terms of leafleting uh, telling you know each business to open up and we'll all be open together and we'll defy this together and there's solidarity in this, but it was it was attributable to nobody. So who was the person who was going to stand by if you know if if you're going to be reprimanded for for defying these? And that's that's when I talk about the, the zero loss game for the people who are behind these things. That's why they choose to do it as well. I just wanted to hop in there and say that what we've noticed is that some of the leaflets that we've seen um, that have been dropped into people's homes have been produced by very loose political groupings, if there is an attribution um, on them at all. As Kieran was saying, they don't always um, have them. And I think that for a lot of people, you might be used to getting political leaflets in the door and you're not expecting to see them as a place sharing misinformation. So one thing that we've wondered about is whether people are more likely to trust these leaflets when they come in the door because they see it as being part of kind of that old school tradition of political leaflets coming in through your door and because you've no way of asking questions which you would if it was on social media you could say well what about this or what about that it's a closed you know it's a bookend there is no way to know any more than 
the information that's on the leaflet in front of you. And one thing that we've seen in particular has been that a lot of them might be rooted in kind of anti-lockdown narrative, which is obviously completely fair. You know, this is a democracy, it's a free country. People can question the lockdown in this country. Um, But what we see on the leaflets is that they often weave in misinformation to back up what they're saying. So it might ostensibly look like an anti-lockdown leaflet, which is fine. But then it starts bringing in narratives about, say, why masks don't work or why masks will make you sicker, which are completely untrue. But it's a very common trope that we've seen on these leaflets. And then suddenly you've got people saying, well, I'm anti-lockdown. I believe that. And then they're saying this about masks. Okay, maybe, you know, maybe that's true too. And suddenly it's just um, very insidious and it's in people's homes. I feel like with those leaflet drops as well, they probably make the person who is dropping the leaflet feel good. And maybe that's the point too, you know, after people feel really good after political activism or if they've taken part in a campaign. And because these people do actually really believe in the the stuff that they're writing or, or dropping into doors, that that's probably an element of why it's perhaps a success as well. Yeah, because so much of it is about feeling like you're part of a community and you're doing something. And we all want to be part of a community. Exactly. And so kind of similarly, Christine, why do you think people are drawn to these types of misinformation too on the face of it that a lot of people would see as outrageous? I think sometimes there could be an assumption that the only people who believe misinformation are not very smart, which is obviously wrong. And also it's it's very patronizing because it has absolutely nothing to do with how smart you are. It's about people wanting to feel validated and to feel safe and to feel part of something. So it's not unusual for people to look for things to back up their point of view or their view of the world, especially when things are rocky. And, you know, people are trying to make sense of what's going on in the world and what's been happening in the last year. So they find these theories and they find these stories that will confirm what they might have already expected about the world. So there's a real emotional pull there. Um, There's a, a researcher in Northern Ireland called Dr. Orna Young, and she's written about how misinformation is often very sticky. You know, they back up how people see the world and what matters to them. Um, and they're very resilient. Like it's very easy. You know, once you start believing one to one thing, then suddenly you are down that rabbit hole and you're much more recept- you know, receptive to, to hearing these things. And there was this thing, Charlie Brooker actually wrote about this in The Guardian a million years ago. And he had this, the way that he put it was, he was saying that when you, if you start believing conspiracy theories or misinformation, but then it's like you're part of a gang, you're sharing this privileged information and the world just makes more sense because you've seen through the matrix. And, you know, that's always stuck with me. I think it's very, there's a lot in that because it's that sense of belonging and finding a community when so many of us don't have one. It's very appealing. It feels very safe and very comforting. I'd, I'd just add to that. I, I, I agree with all that. And, and the flip side of that, when you think about it, it's really loneliness and kind of a loss of identity that we've that we've seen even even pre-covid just people who feel displaced and just things aren't quite the way they were for them before and i mean hannah arendt uh, when she was writing about kind of the origins of totalitarianism in, in nazi germany she pointed towards this this kind of social isolation that a lot of people felt and i think you see something similar here where it's as, as christy mentioned in, in particularly in the pandemic people's lives have either been stopped, put on hold, turned upside down. Their identity has been, for many people, it's been, it's, you know, it's been extinguished, it's gone. And it's a, and in face of it, there's a complex situation going on that does not have a simple answer. It's not a case of it'll be over in two weeks. And within that vacuum, people are being kind of pulled down rabbit holes by others who do offer simple solutions. And, you know, often the solution isn't even something that's going to, to, to solve the problem. It's actually just someone to blame. And so often 
the others will direct anger at you know the government or at um, the World Health Organization or or, or Bill Gates as, as many conspiracies do and for many people that's quite an activating emotion and it's it's something that people can kind of you know feel validated by and often that's just what people uh, are looking for as well so it, it is it's it's not as simple as just social media platforms for example allowing this stuff there are other psychological factors as well at play which highlights how difficult and tough of a challenge it is to combat this this era of mistrust that we seem to be in yeah probably most people can empathize with the idea of feeling angry and just wanting someone to blame over the last year and if you bottle that emotion and kept it with you all the time that's it's really possible to to have fallen down some of these routes What's the best piece of advice, Christine, you have for people who want to avoid misinformation but do feel like they are in a situation right now where they are angry or they are um, feeling completely neglected by government, for instance? How do they make sure what they're reading is correct and make sure that what they're sharing is accurate? I've been thinking a lot lately about this idea that we all have a responsibility to be good citizens on the Internet. And so I think that when you're about to share something or engage with something on the internet, I think take a couple of seconds and just stop, think and check and just say, you know, are you adding to the noise on the internet? Like, do you need to share this thing? Um, is this correct? Like, I, I, I would say if people can, if you're about to share something, have a look and see, is it being shared elsewhere? I think one really helpful thing for people in, in these times is to have one source or at least one source um, of good information that you can go to. So maybe it's like a newspaper, maybe it's a reporter you like on Twitter, maybe it's a news website. Like I hear the journal is amazing. Wow, <laughs> do you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> incredibly subtle plug there. Um, but, you know, I do think just just have a place that you can go to that you trust to get accurate news on the Internet. And if you're seeing something that you're not sure about, go to that place that you trust and see, is this being reported by them? Is this being reported by anybody else? And then just have that sense of, you know, what am I adding to on the Internet if I do share this? Is there something better that it could be doing? And I think a lot of the times for for many of us, you know, we could be stepping away from the Internet a little bit. I feel like, you know, the Internet is often kind of subtracting rather than adding to our lives. Um, and it's probably generally just good advice for all of us to spend a little less time on the Internet, you know, get off the Internet and be in, in the real world a bit more. Kieran? Yeah, I'd echo that. I would recommend that people question the source of the information. Can you name the organization that produced this article, that produced this video that you are watching, and are they transparent in, in, you know, in what they're affiliated towards or something like that? And what's their experience? And, and especially, I'd ask people, I recommend to be a little bit, I suppose, self-reflective and try and judge, are, are you being kind of enticed to, to make a reaction, to share this based on some sort of negative uh, emotion like is someone telling you to be angry telling you to, to to be hostile or seeking to use that that emotion within you as well because often for the very same reason they're, they're trying to co-opt you know emotions that are already there so questioning the source of information is is always a good place to start and we have our helplines on whatsapp and our email fact check at the journal.e for people as well if there is anything that comes to mind that you do want checked we're always available um christine and the team are always available for debunks and fact checks and some of the things that we do get in we will be able to tell people yes that is actually true here's how to deal with it or here's how to get more information um thanks so much kieran and christine for coming into the explainer and talking to us through all of that today thanks thanks Mel. cheers Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Christine and Kieran for all their work. 
This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you want to support The Explainer, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. But you can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people discover us, listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.